Last weekend, we looked at the character trait of submission. Of course, they, in, during the summer, the, um, the ser- series was on character. And so... <clears throat> The, the, uh, the, the men, pastors, were, pray, were preaching on character traits. When I returned, I, I picked up on another one on submission and soon felt, uh, immediately felt that the Holy Spirit said, you're going to have to, you're going to have to unpack this one a little bit. So when uh, Chris returned, uh, he said to me, Dad, uh, you know, why don't you just lop that thing right off of the character series and start a series just on the character trait of submission. And I said, he said, it'll have more impact that way. You'll have a little more time to unpack some things. And I said, you know, I think that's a great idea. So then Ryan Workington uh, immediately put together a PowerPoint for this particular series on submission, and you have it up on the, on the screens. And this is what he wrote me uh, in an email. He explained what the what the uh, meaning behind this particular PowerPoint is. He said, the rough, dirty hands tell us that submission is not easy and it is countercultural. That's very good, isn't it? Then he said, the cross is important because Christ is the ultimate submitter. So I thought that was very, very powerful and shows that even with our tech uh, departments and stuff, they're, they're not about tech. They're about being filled with the Holy Spirit, being led by Him so that everything that they do in itself brings a message uh, to His church and represents Jesus well. We learned last week that submission is not easy. It is, in fact, very difficult and it's very costly. We talked about the cost-benefit principle and, uh, and then we learned about, uh, we talked about three particular benefits of submission, and we said they far outweigh the cost. First one is protection from the powers of darkness. The second one is we learn brokenness. We found out that, that there are powerful, good things in brokenness that we actually desire. And then the third thing is that God greatly blesses us, and especially with himself. And if you didn't hear the first message, of course, you can just go to mysouthland.com, download the message, hear it, and catch up and get the foundation of what we're doing here. Or you can order a DVD or a CD at the Info Center. All right, the topic of submission is difficult because we're influenced by the rebellious spirit of the age that says, no one tells me what to do. No one tells me what to do. And in speaking of the last days or the end times, Jesus prophesied exactly that. He said, and because, of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And the reason that many churches in the West are dead or dying and not just on the outside, but spiritually, their services are dead, is because they don't submit to God and His delegated authorities. Our culture hates authority. In fact, it despises authority. We celebrate individualism and rebellion against authority. At the G20 Summit in Toronto in July, uh, businesses had to shut down in anticipation of anarchy. And the media demagogues sat there judging and pontificating on whether the police had done too little or too much. And after a while of listening to them, you weren't sure who the bad guys were, the ones rioting and destroying public property, or the ones trying to maintain the peace. Teachers tell us, teachers from this church tell, uh, tell us all the time that their hands are tied in the classrooms. Children disrespect their parents and their elders and their teachers. The Prime Minister is assailed and attacked and disrespected every single day. But here's what you and I need to understand 
And that is this. When you received Jesus into your heart, you didn't receive a cuddly, furry, feel-good Jesus. You don't say, I received the cuddly Jesus Christ. When you received him, you received the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say that together. You received the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he is master in your life. He is your Lord. He is a comforter. There is no question. He is a comforter to the hurting, and that's another topic altogether. But primarily, he is your Lord and my Lord. And you received him into your heart that way. Do you know what that means? It means he's your new master. He is a king. It means that he rules. He calls the shots in your life, whether you obey them or not. He's calling them whether you uh, submit to them or not. You are a part of a kingdom ruled by a king. This is not a democracy. And that's where the confusion comes. Democracy is a fine form, probably the finest form of government, uh, human government on this planet in a fallen state. But when you receive Christ and you go into the kingdom, you have joined a kingdom with a king who rules, not democratically. Amen? That is the truth. And in his life, Jesus, the Lamb of God, taught us and modeled for us how to completely submit to God and human authority. He showed us how we were to do that. But when he ascended into heaven, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's very significant. Because the right hand of the Father is the place of authority. That's what it always refers to. He is the authority that we are now to submit to. Jesus is now in charge of your life. He's your boss. He is already ruling his subjects, and he is expanding his kingdom. And that's why he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your what will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a will, and he says, pray that the, my will gets enacted on earth because he's a king. People say to me, I, I wish I could see what he looks like in, uh, now. Well, if you want to see what he looks like, you will see him in his role as being in authority, as a king, as a master. And in fact, he actually sent us a picture of himself after he ascended into heaven, and you can see him. Can't download it on your computers, but you can read it in the book of Revelations. Let's read a little bit. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We're going to come to that in a moment. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He expects us to fall at his feet in submission as well. This is a picture of how he looks now. Heaven will not be a democracy. It will be a kingdom with a king and delegated authorities. 
It will not be a democracy. If you're looking for democracy in heaven, you're going to be deeply disappointed. It's ruled by a king. But here's the good news. It's ruled by a good king. Amen? A good king. And we were singing about him just moments ago. You can't hardly get through that song. You can't hardly get through two lines of it. When you start saying, he is good, he is good. His mercy endures forever. He is good. He really is, isn't he? And today, we're going to look at what submission to this king looks like and to this Lord, what it looks like in the church. And the first point that I want to make is that delegated authorities must submit. He has delegated authorities in his church, and they must submit. But we're going to have to lay the groundwork first. Let's go back to who is the head of the church. Let's be clear about something. Christ is the head of the church. Paul said in Colossians 8, 1.18, very clearly he said, and he is the head of the body, the church. And when, he, and when we say that, we're not talking about a figurehead. Look what Jesus, who is sitting in the place of authority, is doing now. In Revelations 1 to 3, it, it shows him walking among the lampstands, which John says represent the seven churches of Asia. I mean, that, that's what he was doing after that this, this takes place. When you read Revelations 1 to 3, it takes place after Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And the next thing you, you see is the picture of him ruling and reigning. And then you wonder, well, what is he doing? And one of the things it says immediately is he's walking among his churches. He bought the church, he, he is building his church, and he walks through the churches, and he's evaluating them. And he was evaluating specific churches. He is not a figurehead. He is a functional Lord directly in charge. That's interesting, isn't it? He is evaluating the behavior of those seven churches. He commends them. He corrects them. He rebukes them. He warns them. And he admonishes them to repent. And we're going to look at just one of them, just briefly. We'll just read one of the evaluations of one of the churches that he evaluated. All right? So here goes. And it's the church at Ephesus. It's the first one. Just picked one. I know your deeds, he says to this church, your hard work and your perseverance. He sent a message to this church. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Those, there's commendation. Wouldn't you like to receive commendation, church? Wouldn't it be great if, to hear commendation from, from Jesus about this church? Number four, uh, uh, or verse 4. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Uh-oh. Here's reproof coming. Remember the height from which you have fallen, he says. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, here comes warning now, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is the church. And God says, if you don't do it, I'll close your church or I'll at least close or I'll shut uh, or I'll extinguish the light of your church so that it has no more influence. Clearly, he is not a figurehead. He is acting as the true head of his church. He is a real head with real authority and real power over his church. It's his church. He bought it and he's building it. Has it ever occurred to you 
that Jesus is presently walking about through the churches in this region, evaluating them. He's certainly evaluating Southland. That ought, to be, that ought to sober everyone who hears this. It sobers me. Now note who he sends the evaluations to. So we see clearly who is the authority, the functional authority of the church and the churches. It's none other than who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And now he sends the evaluations to someone. John is told to write a message to an angel, remember that word, of each of the seven churches to deliver to the respective churches. In Revelations 2.1 it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And according to Revelations 1.20, these seven angels are represented by seven stars. He said the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And these seven stars, or angels, are held in Jesus' right hand. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, who are these seven angels represented by seven stars who are held in Jesus' right hand, the hand of authority? Who are they? The word in our uh, English translated angel is from the Greek angelos and means messenger, heavenly or human. For example, John the Baptist is referred to an, as an angelon, Matthew chapter 11. I'll just show you this as an example. It says, behold, I send my, what's the word? Messenger. And the word behind it, the Greek word behind it, that is translated uh, as messenger, is angelon, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So we see that when that word angelos comes, it can, it can be translated as either angel, in which case it's really not a, a translation, it's more like a transliteration, or it can be, a, so it can be a heavenly messenger, it can be a human messenger. And that's very important because our English translations all right in there, angel, as a transliteration. It's very, very important, because I don't agree with that at all. Obviously, Jesus didn't give the message to John, who then gave it back to angels, who then preached the messages to their respective churches. It isn't like Jesus gave him a vision, and then John said, now send me seven angels, and he lined them up, delivered it all, and said, now you go preach to those seven churches. He had, God has people, he is human people who preach to his churches. Amen? And uh, so it's an unfortunate translation in our English. It's not the only place where we have problems like that, but that is one of them. These messages were given to human messengers, ministers, or pastors, and incidentally there are other people that totally understand it that way, to deliver to their respective churches. And it is these human ministers and leaders who are in Jesus' right hand, which in Scripture always refers to authority. These ministers or leaders partake directly of Christ's authority and are responsible directly to Him. They, they are upheld by His right hand beyond the power of men or angels to displace them. And if they are unfaithful to God, no one can deliver them from Jesus' hand. Oh boy, they're in trouble. I'm in trouble. But if they are true to their position and calling, none can touch them or quench their light. So when a church votes on a call to a pastor or even its elders, it is not to be like a political vote at all. It is not. When, you, when, when your elders come up for election in June, and I don't come up for election, but they are elders, I'm an elder, 
And when they come up for election in June and you go to the ballot box and you cast your votes, and by the way, it's always around the 98%, right in there, 98 to 100%, always. That's what we always get. But when you're casting your vote, let me say this, you are not casting your vote, vote on the basis of you like them or you like everything about them or everything they've ever done. If you're voting like that, you are, you are voting like a Democrat. And the church does not belong to you and the leaders don't belong to you. They belong to who? Help me. The Lord who holds them in the right hand. It's in, the, in His hand. And that's a fearful thing to be held in His hand. It's a protective thing, but it's also a fearful thing of accountability. And the church does not, this is not a, a democratic thing. Theirs is, there's nothing wrong to vote, but the vote is for a different purpose. Theirs is not to decide whether they like or, uh, that person or not. Theirs is to listen and pray as to what the Lord wants and then ratify what He says. Do you see that, church? When a church calls a pastor, that's not their pastor. It's the Lord's pastor to His church. Amen? I'm accountable to him. You are accountable to him. We're all accountable to him. Amen? Church, amen? amen? Yeah. This church does not belong to the elders. This church does not belong to Pastor Ray. This church does not belong to the staff. It does not belong to a denomination. It belongs to only one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. End of sentence. Amen? That's why this is, one of our fun this is one of our core values here at Southland. One of our ten. We're going to preach on that this fall sometime. So there's this to listen and pray, then ratify what they have heard from their Lord. So when you're casting a ballot, you better have heard from Him. We see that in Acts chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, who said? Holy Spirit, God. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Did the church decide that or did the Lord decide that? The Lord decided that. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. God had already called Paul long before that on the road to Damascus. But the church needed to hear it, and once they heard it, they ratified the call and sent them out. So we still need the ratification of the church, but they must listen. That's why, by the way, I'm a side, side note, sidebar now for free. One of the, the most important thing that I have ever taught you in the 15 years that I've been here was when I started teaching you in 2004 to listen to God in prayer. The most important thing I've ever taught you was to, to listen to God in prayer because that's when you could connect to your Lord and submit to Him. You can't submit to Him when you can't hear Him. Amen? Yeah. And nowhere in Scripture does it tell you whether you should hire Ray or any of the other elders. You've got to hear Him. Amen? That's very, very important. So, 
this is what we see here. The minister does not belong to the people. He belongs to Christ who calls and holds them in his hands. And this is delegated authority. Acts 20 says, keep watch over yourselves and all, all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So we have two types of elders here at Southland. We have volunteer elders and we have paid elders. Volunteer elders who make up the board here, can only give a limited amount of time to elder duties. And so for a church of this size, we also have paid elders or staff. And by the way, not all staff are elders. But, paid el- but we do have paid elders here on staff. Clearly people like Tim Ryan in his pastoral duties or Chris Dirksen in his powerful, uh, profound teaching or Chris Puach in his amazing oversight of huge tracts of organization here uh, are elders as well. And we have female elders. We have, we have Gladys Penner, who's a volunteer one, and Fran Dirksen and Grace Fast. They are elders here at the church. Amen? They're delegated. Uh, they have delegated authority from Christ. First Timothy 5 says the elders, and here's, here's the uh, and scripture actually calls paid elders, act, that, that says that there are paid elders. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox. Now, that's a part I'm struggling with there, but I think it's referring to Chris. <laughs> I said that when he was here last night. <laughs> do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So the church has a plurality of elders. The plurality of elders doesn't mean there is no primary leader. Paul, Peter, and James were all leaders among leaders. The principle is clear. And each church has an angelos, a human messenger who is to hear from God and set tone and general direction. That message, listen to me, there are some things you will never hear from God. You will only hear from those that he delegates in authority. That's how he has chosen to do it, in his infinite wisdom. And that's what he did with those seven churches. He gave the message to to human messengers to deliver to the church. And so they set the uh, the tone and, and general direction. The Lord called me to do that many years ago, and the board of elders recognized and charged me to do exactly that, and they expect me to do it. In fact, they put it in the Constitution. They said, Ray, we charge you to listen to God for direction for this church. I've been doing it for 15 years. And when I go away in July, that's one of the chief things that I do. I give hours and hours and hours to doing that, and I come back and things change. That's a principle we find in Scripture. Moses went up on the mountain with God. He spent time away with God. God told him what, what they were supposed to do. That's a principle. And when the Holy Spirit reveals something to me, I bring it to them, to the the volunteer elders make up the board, and we listen and discern together. And if we disagree, I cannot force them to submit. They must choose it. Here's something very sobering for me in all delegated church authorities. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. We'll come to that a little later. But as those who will have to, what? Give an account. Listen to what James chapter 3, verse 1 says. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Wow. Uh, God holds me to a different standard, and he holds the elders, paid and volunteer here, to a different standard than he holds you. He holds us to a higher standard. And when Moses disobeyed by striking the rock, 
Instead of speaking to the rock, that's not such a big deal. Come on. Is it? They both start with S. Strike, speak, it's close. He did something to the rock, but he didn't do precisely what God told him. And when he didn't do it, God disqualified Moses from entering the promised land for that one little act of insubmission. He got about 99% of it right, but he missed that one part, and God said, you're disqualified. God holds us to account. Trust me, and it's not just when we get to heaven. He does it now, and that puts the fear of God in me. We'll, get to, we'll give, give you examples of that in just a few minutes. So, uh, well, I'll give you one example very quickly right now, because it's in my notes. When the Holy Spirit said to me years ago, and I won't go into this, I, I use this a lot because it's a watershed moment, but in 2004 when he said, go back and tell, tell them about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, tell them that. And I said, God, I can't tell Southland that. If I tell them, I could lose my job. Or, I said, the church could split. And the Holy Spirit said to me in no uncertain terms, he did not give me a fuzzy, warm feeling and pat me on the back. In no uncertain terms, he responded to me and he said, and this was on the beach, in White Rock, and he said, what's that to you? It's my church, not your church. This isn't my church. I just do what he tells me to do. I'm just a servant, just like you. That's all I am. Amen? Yeah. And I was very worried that he would replace me if I didn't obey him. There's a fear of God in me. And so I obeyed. I didn't want to forfeit the call and privilege to serve God and lead this church. Here's the second part. The church people must submit as well. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Do you know uh, something? And you could ask Fran about this anytime. There isn't one single day and many hours through the day when I don't have Southland and you on my mind. You are constantly on my mind and constantly in my heart. I can't help it. I can't get, I can't get away from it. I go on vacation. That's all I think about. That's all I work with. That's all I do. I don't have a life. <laughs> you are my life. That's... God puts that like that. I care about your souls. And I say, God, what direction do you want us to go? And what's the timing? And how do you want us to do that? And then he, and then he tells me how it's supposed to do it. And he puts it in my heart. More than anything else, God wants your submission and obedience. Now, there's three things in your life that hinge on submission. Here's the first one. Acceptable worship to him, hinges on your submission. God wants your submission more than your worship. Did you know that? Submission was a higher priority for Jesus than his death on the cross. Now that'll make some gasp, but listen to the verse. Matthew 26, Jesus said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Then look at the second part. Yet not as I will, but as you will. If there was another way to redeem us, Jesus was all for it. But one thing was non-negotiable, his submission to his father's will. This was completely opposite of King Saul, who thought sacrifice was more important than total submission and obedience. Let's pick up the story where Saul explains why he disobeyed. You remember God had said to Saul, uh, I want you to kill King Agag and, and the people and all the animals. 
And now Samuel comes to Saul and he hears the bleeding of the sheep and he's waiting. He's saying, I just heard that all the animals were killed and now for some reason I'm hearing animal noises. And so he goes to King Saul and he says, why am I hearing animals? And the king says, well, the soldiers, they took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, you have to admit, this sounds pretty spiritual. Amen? I would have killed them all, but I'm keeping the best ones to sacrifice to God. Well, you can just imagine God in heaven leaning over and saying, Saul, why didn't I think of that? What a great idea. That's what I should have told you. Kill all of them but the best ones. Of course, then you can sacrifice them to me. You are amazing. Well, let's see if that's what he said. Verse 22. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. God does not accept everyone's worship. He doesn't. He accepted Abel's worship, but he rejected Cain's worship. Think of it. God did not accept the worship of everyone here today. It doesn't matter how, how, how loudly you sang the song today. It doesn't matter if you came early to sing all the songs. It doesn't matter if you held your hands in the air. By the way, that's a, that's, those are signs of submission. That's all that means. It's like surrender. That's, that's why people do that. That's what, the, that's what we're talking about this weekend. Submission. It doesn't matter if you do that. But if you don't surrender, he doesn't accept your worship or mine. Surrender, submission, obedience is more important to him than your sacrifice of worship. Wow. That's powerful. Here's the second thing that hinges on your submission and mine. Ministry. The privilege of ministering on behalf of God. 1 Samuel 15, 23, the very next verse, in fact, says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Wow. And sure enough, God raised up David to replace Saul. We know the story. As soon as God felt David was good to go, that he had grown enough, he removed Saul. But he had determined it long before he removed Saul. People feel that God needs them because they're so gifted. They're amazing. You know, they've got this amazing prophetic gift or musical gift or teaching gift or leadership gift or whatever it is. God couldn't possibly do without them, so they think. But, if, but listen to me. If God can gift a donkey to speak on a moment's notice, then he can gift anyone with any gift at any given moment. Don't you agree? And he did gift a donkey in the spur of a moment. Before Saul was a king, he went looking for his father's lost donkeys. Remember the story, how he became a king? God told the prophet Samuel that Saul would be coming the next day looking for the donkeys. Then God told Samuel to anoint Saul to be Israel's first king. Samuel did what the Lord instructed. He anointed Saul with oil. He told him where the donkeys were. He told him he'd meet three men who would offer him two loaves of bread. And he said he would meet a group of prophets. And look what he said would happen when he met the prophets. And we read. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. That's when you meet those prophets. And you will prophesy with them. He had never done that before. And be what? Turned into another man. Just 
like that. And God turned him, and he, he immediately had the gift of kingship. He had the ability to be a king. In fact, a few verses later, I, I didn't put it all in here because of time. I took it all out. It's, it, it goes on to say uh, that, that Samuel says, And when that happens, do whatever your heart finds to do. Because he would then know what to do, because he had a gift of kingship then. Till then, he didn't, have a, he didn't have a foggy clue what to do. So God turned Saul into a gifted king. But do you know what God didn't give Saul? He didn't give him the character to be a king. That's the part we have to choose to grow in and then cooperate with God in the training regimen he gives you for that. That's why he, you say, why did God allow this to happen to David where he was being chased and everything? You know what God was doing? He was growing character. He had already told David, you've got, you anointed him to be a king. He had the gift of being a king. He said, but you don't have the character and I'm going to put the character in you, which Saul didn't. Saul, uh, Saul never uh, responded correctly and he gives that to you. Poor Saul, or should I say poor family, poor country, because he didn't submit. And the results for everyone were catastrophic. God had to replace this very gifted man because he didn't have the character trait of submission to match the gifts. And that strikes fear in me. And I'll tell you why. Because I think to myself, if God had a David waiting in his wings, he has a David waiting in my wings too if I don't submit. And he has a, a David waiting in your wings. And everybody here, no one is irreplaceable. Amen? I, I once, in, in, years ago, in the old building, and we had, we had trouble with one particular individual who uh, was prominent in the church, and, and I had to remove this individual. And somebody came to me and said, you sh this is a big mistake you're making because the church is growing because of this person. And we've grown about four times that size since. And the person was removed. In the 30 years that God, since God called me into ministry, March 18, 1980, I've seen too many gifted volunteers, staff and pastors, set aside by God because of their rebellion towards Him directly or towards Him through His delegated authorities, and they're not serving in ministry today. I have a list of people. I don't write it down but I have it. It's in my mind. And it strikes fear in me because I say I could be added to that list if I don't submit and it should for us. Here's the third thing that uh, hinges on submission and it's friendship with God. There's so much talk in Western Christianity today on being a friend of God. And after all, Abraham was called a friend of God. Amen? And didn't Jesus say something about us being his friends? Well, let's see exactly how he put it. You are my friends. What? It's up there. You are my friends. What's the next word? If. It's a conditional word, and then comes the condition. If what? If you do what I command. In other words, if you obey or submit. Wow. Friendship with God is conditional upon submission. You may have received Jesus Christ, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. He may, you may have experienced him as a friend, but if you stop submitting to him, you lose your friendship with God. You forfeit it. Friendship with God is conditional upon submission. Abram was a, a friend of God because he submitted to God. 
God may be telling you, for example, and I don't know, these are not necessarily moral issues, but things that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. Cut back on your TV or get rid of it altogether or your video games or begin tithing or to volunteer or not to build a bigger house or not to buy some toy or whatever. I don't know. These are not things that I can say, but he can say them to you. And you need to submit to his authority and obey him. Further, I've noticed a few disturbing trends. By the way, in any of those things, Fran and I will always listen in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit what he wants. Further, I have noticed a few disturbing trends in Christian circles that go beyond those types of things, move into the moral area. Sexual sins. And let me say this really clearly. This is a church. Any sex outside of marriage between one woman and one man is sin, and that includes touching without intercourse. I wish I didn't have to say it like that. But I have to nowadays. The world may do that and may find it acceptable, but it is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. Amen, church? You can't mix the two. Here's the second one. Divorce. Any divorce aside from desertion, where your partner leaves you, infidelity, sexual sin, or physical danger, is sin. And even then, you better ask God first. Remember the story of Hosea. God told Hosea to go marry a harlot. So even then, you may have a biblical right, but the, the Holy Spirit, you must hear Him, and you listen and obey Him. But certainly you cannot move from those parameters. Here's a third one. This one's become more recent in the, in the volunteer elders, the board. Made a policy on this, uh, we made a policy on this a few years ago when we first encountered it here at Southland. And this is a, it's a, more, it's a newer one. People who are still married, perhaps going through divorce proceedings, and they begin dating others. It's a sin. Here's five reasons. First, it's a sin because you are still married. Period. End of sentence. Number two, you need to be fighting for your marriage, not helping it blow up. You need to be fasting and praying during that time. Number three, during the separation phase, God wants, you, wants to work on your issues. That's very, very important. Number four, it's a terrible testimony to unbelievers, and they mock God. That's perhaps the greatest reason. And number five, it's a bad example to our youth. Then they begin to devalue marriage like our society now, if you have, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and if, if, if you've committed any one of these sins, and I bet a whole bunch of us have, a whole bunch here have, if you have repented and you turned from that when you received Jesus or some time ago, th this, uh, this wasn't directed at you. You should be going, amen. I tasted the bad fruit. I was like Adam and Eve, and I took the apple, and I shouldn't have done it, and I feel bad about it. Now I'm warning everybody else. God bless you. I'm not talking to you. But if you're one that's, con you're in the church and you're in the kingdom of God and you're contemplating this behavior or you're involved in it now, you need to stop now. Yeah. That's all I'll say about it. Your friendship with God, your worship, your eternity, and your usefulness for God all depend on submission to Him in these areas. Now, let's get to the final one. 
because some of you have talked to me, and it's quite, we, of course, it's all in jest. Last week I said, we'll talk about the rule of submission, and then we'll come to the exception next week. I promised you that, and we will, somewhere in this third point, okay? So now you can take a deep breath and come to the final point. What do we do when our authorities are wrong? This will surprise you. When delegated authorities are wrong, we still must submit. Now some of you are ready to bolt for the doors. But before you do, I want you to hear me out because it's not what you think. <laughs> There's a twist to this, all right? So hear me out. The first thing is, uh, and there are, uh, let me say this, there definitely are times when we need to express our concerns to our leaders. Other times when we need to remove ourselves from under their authority. There are times. And occasionally, we must even disobey our delegated authority. Peter and John said, we must obey God rather than man. Remember when they disobeyed it, the, the civil authorities? But here's a warning. We're entering a dangerous zone, and if we're not careful, we can move into rebellious responses. So what are we to do when our delegated church authorities are wrong or just not as informed or we think they're wrong or we disagree with their opinion? Okay? There's a, you know, it's, 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 there's a bar there. There's, there's a grade. The first thing is we need to listen in prayer submissively. You must spend a period of time in prayer and perhaps fasting. You never go in guns blazing and take them on. Never. First of all, you don't have the whole picture. And I'm going to start with a negative, picture, uh, a negative example from myself. I wish I didn't have to do it, but I think you need to hear this. In 2001, I didn't submit for a few hours. Now, that's a long time ago, 2001. It's a long time ago when I didn't do it. As if that makes it better, right? <laughs> Isn't that how we always feel? <laughs> the second thing is, I did repent, and I did repent within a few hours. But I didn't submit. I was a pastor here at this church, because as an, uh, to individuals in this church, I lead this church. There's no question. But then I have elders that I work with, and I submit to a board. So I lead them, but I also submit to them collectively. And I can't just do whatever I want, like the Holy Spirit thing. I went to them, and it wasn't until they gave the okay that, we, that we, we moved on. So I did not submit for one night. I, I knew that I'd heard from God on a particularly very challenging issue we were facing. In the fall of 2001, we were growing fast, and I could not solve the problem. I knew that it was going to double my workload. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And Fran and I were listening in prayer, and the Holy Spirit gave us a solution. But I knew it was going to be a controversial solution. I took it to the board, and I explained it. And I, and, I, uh, and I won't tell you what the issue is, because then you'll get locked on the issue and not on the principle. And the principle is what's important. Because it doesn't matter whether I was right or wrong on it. The issue is how I handled it or didn't handle it. And so to a person, the entire board disagreed with me. And I was really upset inside because I knew what this was going to do to me personally. And so instead of taking it away and listening in prayer, anger just rose up within me. And I didn't swear or anything like that, but I... But, I but I, my tone and what I said to them was disrespectful. I was very, very angry. And uh, by the next morning, the Holy Spirit had convicted me. 
And I called each one of those individuals, and I repented. And I apologized to them individually, and I repented. Not, the, the board never, they, they never hammered me. They, they never made me submit. They, nothing. They were very gracious about the whole thing, and they let it go. And they would never have said any of, they would never have told any of you this. I'm telling you. It was the wrong way to do it. I missed a key step, which was listening in prayer. Because that meant I'm not trusting God to take care of it. This is His church, amen? I don't have a problem if somebody doesn't want to follow Jesus. He can take care of His own church, don't you think? Well, 2007, I'll give you a better example. I knew God was telling me something major for Southland, and it was clear. But it was not clear to the leadership at that time. And there was firm opposition. And this time, I listened in prayer with Fran. I did not blow up. I did not do, I did not do that again. I did it one time, not before and not since, in 23 years of pastoring. And I, Fran and I listened in prayer, and you know what the Holy Spirit did? Gave us a picture through Fran, and the picture was of, of an airplane cockpit. Jesus was flying in the captain's seat, and I, I was in the, uh, the co-pilot's seat. And then Jesus turned to me, and he said, Ray, we are now entering bad weather, tough situation, and you're not skilled to handle that. I am now going to take the controls. I want you to take your hands off the controls, and I don't even want you touching the radios. You don't broadcast this. And so I took my hands off, and it took two years fasting and praying and waiting. And God eventually orchestrated the circumstances, and it happened in His time with perfect unity and harmony. Amen? That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, Grace Fast, I'll, I'll never forget uh, many years, uh, years ago, she, um, I was learning about the Holy Spirit and, and the gifts of the Spirit and stuff, and finally one day I said to the Lord, is there anybody in this church, <laughs> Southland, that I can trust to talk about this? You know, because I didn't want it blowing up. And the Holy Spirit said to me, yes, you can trust Grace Fast. And while she was my prayer partner, so that made sense to me. So I figured, yeah, I'll call her and ask her to be praying on this thing because I sensed the Holy Spirit was moving me in that direction already. This was back probably 2000, 2001, something like that, or maybe even a little later. But anyway, uh, I phoned her and I said, Grace, this is what I'm wrestling with. And she said, you know, uh, I already believe in those gifts and I practice the gift of tongues. I said, you What? I thought, it can't be. And I thought, what, are, what did I hire here? And, <laughs> and, uh, and then she told me that two times she had wanted to tell me that on two different occasions. She told me the story. And two times the Holy Spirit immediately stopped her and said, don't say a word. And so she kept it quiet and she listened. That's what we're supposed to do. Amen? Here's the, here's the second principle. Speak to your authority submissively. When David, uh, David tried to reason with King Saul, we see it in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, he said to Saul, in effect, as far as I know, my heart is right, so why do you seek to kill me? If I've done something wrong, please tell me. It was obvious that David did not speak out of a rebellious spirit. He spoke with a submissive spirit while questioning his authority's actions. My father-in-law is probably one of the best examples of this. He's lived with under authority uh, uh, most of his life. He hasn't been in charge of things very much. 
uh, throughout his life, and he's learned how to submit to authority and how to question them or speak to them about wrong things. And he's often told us different stories about how he's approached uh, people who were, for example, his bosses. And sometimes there was things of integrity that were at stake and things that were hurting employees or whatever, and it would trouble him and bother him in his spirit, and finally he figured he needed to do something about it. And he would go up to them, and he'd sit down with them, and he'd be very gentle, and then he'd say this, and I'll never forget it, probably the lesson uh, for life for me from this. He would say, now if you were in my shoes, and this was happening, how would you handle it? Very disarming. It's very disarming. It wasn't attacking and saying, you're wrong. It was simply, try to come on my side here and just help me to understand how I should handle this. That's a submissive way to speak to an authority, whether it's at work or in a church, wherever. That's the way you do it. Children, that's how you need to talk to your parents. Amen. <laughs> parents will be going, Amen. We need to take great care that we act in a spirit of humility and submission to our Lord Jesus, not in a spirit of pride and accusation of Satan. Here's a question now that you may have. What if I hold a different view or opinion about a matter that, uh, than leadership here at Southland? Does that make me rebellious? Not necessarily. It all depends on what's in your heart and how you handle it. Now, if you start calling or emailing others to persuade them to your point of view, that is rebellious because it creates division. But if you, go into, and if you go into a cell and you begin to speak against leadership because you don't agree with this point or that one, and you, you, you take the message apart in a cell, I'm telling you, you've crossed the line. And cell leaders, don't put up with it. You have a delegated authority, you need to stop it. That's rebellion. Nothing short of it. God will take us to task for such behavior. He has not called you to lead this church or delegated his authority to you. And you know what bugs me about this kind of thing? I am under accountability. All the elders in this church, volunteer and otherwise, all are under authority the way our system and structure is set up. Every one of them. But then you get this smart aleck that goes into a cell, has no accountability, no calling from the church or ratification from the church at all, and suddenly starts taking people in another direction. That's a problem, right? You see the problem? Just say yes, even if you don't. <laughs> there was a church, uh, the church that our pastor before this planted and pastored in Woodstock, and there was a couple who had been very influenced by Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts and had come to believe that birth control was wrong. wrong it was wrong for women to wear pants, Couples should abstain from sex for two weeks each month, and that one really got to me. <laughs> Let's just move on now. Men should have short hair, and women should, uh, must have long hair. Now, here's a question. Did they have a right to believe that, yes or no? Yes, they had a right to believe it. But they didn't have a right to do what they did next. They boycotted the Wednesday night Bible study and prayer meeting that I was leading, and rather, they set up their own home meeting. And they called young converts that I had led to Christ to join their group. And there they started teaching directly opposite of what I was teaching in the church. It caused great confusion and dissension and division in the church. And this is called rebellion. It hurt the church tremendously. 
The enemy gained the advantage and slowed the growth right down. There has to be alignment in God's kingdom. Amen? Yeah. And here's the third one. Leave submissively. So you listen in prayer submissively. You speak to the authorities submissively. And then you leave submissively. So there you are. There are situations where leaving is the best option. But we must seek to know the Lord's direction for our given circumstances. God knows our hearts and the hearts of our authorities. David removed himself from the presence of Saul with God's blessing. Yet David did not manifest rebellion towards Saul. This ought not to be entered into lightly, ever. Let me finish with this illustration. We, Fran and I were attending many years ago another church just during an interim period in our life. I was not pastoring. And, uh, and uh, the church that we decided to attend, we knew that in one particular area that they held a very strong view and a practical position. I won't say what it is. It doesn't matter. They had the right to... to uh, to hold that view, though we don't hold it here at Southland. And so we said, well, we don't have a problem. We can still go to their church. We don't mind that if they hold. We can agree to disagree. We just don't have to bring that up. And I never told anybody that we disagreed. Didn't talk to other people in the church, start nattering and saying, oh, that's dumb, that's stupid. We, you really should believe that. And so the leadership never heard that we disagreed. And we started serving wherever we could. And finally, the leadership of the church came to us and said, including the pastor, and said, Ray, would you consider rotating once in a while into the pulpit here? We'd like you to speak every once in a while. I said, sure. And they said, well, one thing, you've got to become a member. And I, we, had just, we hadn't been attending there very mu many months, and we thought, well, that'd be fine. We'd become a member. And, um, and then in the course of the conversation on becoming a member, this position that they had that was very dear to them came up. What do I do now? Do I hide it? Then I fail the integrity message in July. Amen? I didn't want to fail that one. I knew it was coming. And uh, so I finally brought it up and I said, you know about this position? I hold a different one, but I don't tell anybody here and I don't preach it and I, I, I don't lead anybody astray. I'm submitted to what you're doing here. And they said, that's a problem. If you don't believe it, you can't become a member. And if you can't be a member, you can't serve here. Well, that created a bit of a uh, dilemma for us because now we, even the little bit of serving we were doing, now we couldn't even do that. So at this point, we had a choice. Do you get angry? Or what do you do? In the meantime, our teen, teenagers started asking us why we weren't becoming members there because we had always taught it was important. Get committed, love the church, serve, love the church, pray, all the rest. Why aren't you becoming a member? And then we said, well... <laughs> It was touchy. We, we can't, and here's the reason why. Well, they weren't very happy about that because it was their parents. And so right there, I said to Fran, that's it. We're not leaving this church now. Even if we can't serve, we don't leave, and we're going to demonstrate to our teenagers that you don't leave because you disagree, and you don't get upset, and you don't spew off on them and tell them, tell them how stupid the church leaders are and that kind of stuff. We said, here's a chance for us to demonstrate something in how you deal with differences. And we waited till our teens understood that. And once they saw that we just blessed the church leadership anyway, then we quietly slipped away and we never told anybody. And then when we, uh, and guess which church we landed up in? Southland. <laughs> and, uh, and guess what? Here's the good part of the story. Do you know what that pastor and his wife did one day? 
One day they phoned us up and said, would you like to have breakfast with us on the deck? And we said, absolutely we would. This is after this situation happened. And then a couple of years after we were gone, he phoned me up one day and he said, would you come and speak in my pulpit? Is that amazing? Had his position changed? No. Had my position changed? No. But we could, as we listened to the Spirit of God, and when he released us, we left, and we left submissively, blessing them, and to this day, I bless that church. Listen, church, not many decades will pass from now, perhaps maybe not many more years, before we are gone from this earth. All that we will be in eternity is determined by the choices we make right now. This message was actually God's mercy to you today. He's warning you and I before it's too late. You know, we sang this song, you are good, you are good. Good. He was good to us today. Do you know why? Because he told us what questions would be on the exam at the end. I always thought teachers who told me what would be on the exam were good teachers. Because if I knew what the questions were, I could study and get the answers right and get a good mark or a perfect mark. I still believe they're good. And God says to you and I, these are the questions that will be asked on the exam or we call it at the judgment. And I'm telling you beforehand so that you can get yourself ready and right and that you can have a good mark at the end. He's good, isn't he? So he calls us to repent and turn to him now while there's still time. Holy Spirit, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord of the church, that you are good to us. Thank you for teaching us clearly. Thank you for telling us, explaining to what, to us what's going to be on the exam, what we can expect to hear so that we can align our lives now. And for some of us right now, some of us, many of us have had to repent of insubordination in the past. I've had to do it. Lord, thank you for your mercy in forgiving me. And Lord, there are some that need to confess and repent now and get some things right. God, grant them the grace to deal with it today or tomorrow, to deal with it quickly before the time is too late. In Jesus' name, amen.